Welcome back to Pancreas Pals, a podcast by diabetics for diabetics. I'm Emily, a writer and editor. And I'm Miriam, a licensed mental health counselor. We're just two women trying to live our best diabetic lives. While it might not always be easy due to the literal highs and lows, it always helps to have a pancreas pal to turn to. Hey guys, welcome to Pancreas Pals. Emily here. And Miriam. And this week's very, I say this week, but I am not recording enough for me to say this week. A very special guest is the return of the one and only Dr. Mike Natter. Welcome, Mike. Uh, Thank you for having me. For those who don't know Mike, you are living under a rock, but he is a board certified (laughs) endocrinologist. He has the most creative takes on all things medical on his Instagram. Do you want to plug your Instagram real quick? Because I, I feel like I'm going to butcher it. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So I, I'm on Instagram at Mike, M-I-K-E dot Natter and like Nancy, A-T-T-E-R. Like and subscribe all the things. and then Smash all the on. buttons. Smash them. We do TikTok. I don't dance, though. I just draw stuff. You do, uh, but it's you fun. do TikTok? I'm so out oh of my gosh. TikTok. I need to yeah. follow. I don't. Okay. I point at things that aren't there. I do dances. No, I do none of that. I draw stuff. And then on Twitter, I, some variation of Mike Natter, Mike underscore Natter. X. X, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Elon's going to come after me. <laughs> As someone that works in the publishing industry, my my small sense of joy is found in correcting people on X because I think it's like the biggest lol. Um, What's the verb for posting now? When you when you tweet, um, what is it called? No, you still tweet. I don't know specifically oh. what it's called, but everyone in the publishing biz it's refers to it. You still say a tweet. Yeah, you still say Twitter or tweeting, and then for Twitter specifically, you say formerly Twitter, now known as X. Uh, that's not a mouthful. No, <laughs> well, you do parentheses. You're like X, formerly Twitter, and then keep going. Uh, listeners, you totally missed my hand movements there, but I think you can imagine it. Um, anyways, back to the diabetes world. Um, Mike and I actually recently got to hang out in real life uh, doing some fun youth outreach, if you will, in the diabetes world. And oh, cool. we got to talk about all the things that I randomly will text him and <laughs> just bother him in the endocrinology space but never um, a bother uh well thanks i'll talk to my therapist about that because like i feel like it is but this is real this is me um miriam and i are always talking about what it's like living our lives with type one on the Mm -hmm. podcast and then to have a type one diabetic who literally made a career out of caring for others with all types of diabetes i definitely encourage our listeners to head back to i need to plug whatever episode this was to listen to Mike's full diagnosis story because we don't need to rehash that at this point um, unless you're dying to Mike but we've definitely talked about it um, I'm curious to to hear kind of like what your day-to-day of managing your type one is like while also helping others manage their various types of diabetes yeah I mean it's it's the weirdest thing because it's probably the biggest blessing and the biggest curse um, to be a type one endocrinologist. For one, I mean, I grew up hating to go to my endocrinologist. I felt ashamed. I felt judged. I felt awkward. Um, and I also had this kind of feeling of resentment. You know, here I am, um, you know, a kid and then a teenager and then an adult living this disease, living, breathing this disease every minute of every day of my life. I am my own expert. And I see an endocrinologist every three months for 15 minutes and here they are telling me how I'm messing up and how I'm doing it wrong. And I, I just felt this sense of like 
how, like, who are you to kind of say this to me? So I always, I start my visits off with my newly diagnosed type ones or the first time I meet a type one. I always tell them like, I have this too. It sucks, but you know, it is what it is. And I'm here to be your teammate and your you know partner in this journey. I'm not here to judge you, to stigmatize you and make you feel bad. So I think that understanding it really sets a nice tone and, and like you whenever you see like a dex come on someone in the street it's like you have that kinship like immediately like you know that you understand each other on that level so i think that makes the rapport really nice so in that respect i think it's the power that i have in terms of being a, a clinician with type one on the flip side you know i am inundated with diabetes every day and it weighs on me when i see my patients that aren't, you know, doing well, my patients that are having complications. Um, it's hard, you know, so like, I think about that, I think about what that means for me, if I slip up and, you know, you know, all of that. So it's just kind of like ever present. And that was a big decision about when I was uh, specializing after residency, what I would do. And I always felt connected with, with endocrine, but part of me thought maybe it's not a smart idea for me to just do it all day, every day. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I really feel the benefits outweigh the cons, and I feel a fulfillment when I when I connect with my patients. Miriam, any any hot takes from the licensed mental health counselor in the room? I mean, well, I I feel similarly, and I don't like I cover health news and I cover a lot of general diabetes content, and have made it my mission to kind of refocus how we are describing all different types of diabetes and to be inclusive and all this stuff. And I get burnt out just from that. I can't imagine. And then Miriam, also, you you deal with mental yeah. health and then have your own mental health. <laughs> of course. And not only that, but my – similarly, Mike, like my practice, I'm on the, the world's longest maternity leave right now, but I – still on maternity leave? Wait, <laughs> I, I want to circle back to that later because your kid <laughs> is like over a year old, so I need to know more about this. Um, but my clients were primarily – like 95% of them were type 1 diabetic adults, and so – I think that's, I can relate to that feeling of being inundated with it. Um, but I think I'm also curious, something I've experienced is really having to like check myself that I'm not projecting too much because I obviously understand that experience so much. And so I'm wondering for you, like balancing that line between being a diabetic, but also being their doctor, do you ever feel like, I'm trying to think of an example, like like your lancet excuse me Sorry about that like changing your lancet as the doctor you're supposed to tell the patient after every blood sugar check do a new lancet but like as a type 1 diabetic you're like no way i'm doing that so how do you balance those sorts of things do you verge this is a long... gotcha moment where we get mike on the record saying that <laughs> yeah, he's never changed wait, Miriam, i feel like have you been stalking me like do you know my like, you know, Has anyone changed their lancet though? Let's be real. <laughs> I will say this. I, I, I think most physicians will say, do as I say, not as I do. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that there, but you bring up a good point, an excellent point and something I, I guess I do kind of struggle with because I try to like medicine is not one size fits all. And I try to meet my patient where they are and meet them halfway. And so mm -hmm. there are times when I can sense that you know, I, I, I take the clarity Dexcom thing off the screen. I turn to them and I just talk to them and I listen to them more, more than that. And there are times when you just have to say like, screw the data, screw the A1C, screw the management, 
Mm-hmm. Like you're going through it. And so sometimes that's when I am a little bit more personal with them. And I say, yeah, like they, I struggle with like X, Y, and Z as well. And like, you're not alone in that. And, and so like, sometimes I will kind of let that, that clinical barrier down. Um, and, you know, I think the most common time I say that is um, the things that we all struggle with. So like the landsat changing, sure. Mm-hmm. But I think I find myself saying like, you know, we'll be going through their data and I'll see uh, like a postprandial spike and I'll, I'll ask them about pre-bolusing. And like, yeah, you know, I just, doc, I don't, I don't do a good job pre-bolusing. And I look at them and I say, I don't either. Like, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Sorry, can I interrupt Which, for a second? Post yeah. what spike? Are you talking about oh, after I'm sorry. eating? Yes. So I'm sorry. Postprandial means after a meal. So That was so his doctor hours. hat on. I uh, thought really? I knew, but um, <laughs> no, I no, just want I our listeners to know they're not alone. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, it's. It's the curse of, yeah, in medicine, you like you basically learn a different language and sometimes you forget you're in like the wrong you space. You speak Latin, it's chill. It's fine. <laughs> so after a meal, like I might see some patterns arising. And so one of the questions would be like, oh, this could be, you know, not that you're miscounting your carb or not that you're, you know, taking too little insulin. It could be that you're just taking it at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And that's a very common thing that we all do. And I relate to that. I struggle with that myself. And so those are situations where I'm like, yeah, like I get that it's hard. So I try to use it as an example of like, it's not that your, your struggle is yours alone. It's that we all struggle with that. Um, but we can then try to use that to make it more conscious so that hopefully we can address that. And then there are times when I'm like, you know, overtreating lows is something that I think is also pretty common. And I, mm-hmm. I find myself doing it as well. And I make the joke that like when I go low, especially in the middle of the night, like I eat the kitchen and then I wake up at, you know, 300 and it's shitty and I hate it. And I know logically, clinically, educationally that I shouldn't do it. And in the moment, I know I'm not supposed to do it. And I struggle. You know, it's something I personally struggle with. And I tell my patients that who I see also having these post-low spikes. And it's like, I understand. Like, you feel like you're going to die. And even though you know there's a difference and a lag in terms of when the glucose is going to, you know, kick in and when when your sugars are going to come up and when your symptoms are going to relieve, like, you know that, and yet you still eat through it. So I, I I think, you know, Miriam, to your point, like, I think there's something to be said about finding the balance. And I'm not saying I do a good job of it. Maybe I overshare. But I try to find the patients that might need to hear that. Mm-hmm. And then I try to keep it more to myself for the patients that don't need to hear that. And it could be detrimental to hear. Yeah. And That's I, it's interesting. My endocrinologist is also a type 1 diabetic. And that that is is what I value. And I, I kind of knew that when I sought this doctor out, I sought that out specifically because I wanted that understanding. And so I think it's such an asset. And I imagine most of your type one diabetic patients are so pleased, you know, to find out that you have type one yourself. I've also found that the rhetoric around like between I've had some really great endocrinologists. Shout out to my current endocrinologist, Dr. Lauren Golden. You rock, don't ever change. Um, <laughs> and I've had some that are good. And then I've had, you know, a misdiagnosis that obviously was horrible. But I find that there's almost this level of blame for the newer endocrinologists that are like the the people that are just starting out and um, or maybe have been primarily dealing with type two in their career. Um I just find that personally for me, like any 
anytime I feel like I have to explain something in a way, mm-hmm. like, like I have to give a reason for why my blood sugar went high. I know I'm not connecting well with an endocrinologist. And I find that it's the ones that work with me and not instead of being like, Ooh, you went high here. What did mm-hmm. you do? Instead yeah. being like, Oh, you know, let's take a look at this graph. Like overall, this is great, but I sound like I'm being coddled and I am and I need that. Um, but like on the whole, I I really hate it when an, a doctor who doesn't have any type of, you know, or at least that I know they don't need to share any of that, um, any type of diabetes kind of like looking at me like, what did you do? And mm-hmm. that just kind of makes me tap into my rebellious teen that I never was and I'm trying not to be, but really feel like I am as I get closer to 30, which is in a couple of weeks. And Woo! <laughs> I'm like, I want to be like, you think that's bad? Watch me. Like, let's go, guys. I feel like Shania Twain. Let's go, girls. But I find it so interesting when I do talk to people that are in the medical world with type one, the differences in be- between like what they know are like livable truths with type one or any type of diabetes versus the clinical responses to types of diabetes. And this very roundabout way of me inserting myself into this conversation is me trying to ask, like, I'm curious as to the differences you've seen between the clinical approaches of what you were taught in medical school or in rotation and the actual livable consequences of some of these things. Like, are there any differences that you've seen between having type one and what the textbooks have said? Absolutely. And and Emily, I'm really glad you brought that up because I want to make a big point here. And I think you were kind of getting at this point. The clinician does not need to share the condition with the patient to be a good empathetic provider. Mm-hmm. And I have so many colleagues that are wonderful examples of that. A lot of my endocrinology colleagues that I work with are phenomenal humans and phenomenal doctors. And they often struggle with the fact and will come to me and ask, you know, like a, a question of how to approach this patient, given that they know that they don't share the condition mm-hmm. and that they want to be sensitive to that. And so I, I think that's important to bring up. And and obviously, when you walk in the shoes, it's just automatically you have that street cred. But that does not mean that the other endocrinologists that you'll come into contact with won't, you know, be that partner in crime for mm-hmm. you. So to your point, and it's so funny that we're talking about this right now because I'm on a group chat. So the way medical training works is you go through medical school, which is four years, and then you have your MD, and then you have to do a residency. So residency for internal medicine residency is three years, and that's like hellacious, and the hours are horrendous. But you haven't really learned endocrine there. Like You know what endocrine is, but you haven't gotten the subspecialty training yet. After the three years of residency, then you do a fellowship. And in those fellowship years, you learn if you decide to do endocrine you learn endocrine and you learn the the science of it. You learn the clinical stuff about it, but especially when you're dealing with chronic conditions like type one, it's so much of an art and less of a science when it comes down to it. Mm-hmm. And the, the best, I think teachers, the best um, uh, attendings that I've worked with and learned from they, they show you how it's not an algorithm. It's not a textbook. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. They show you how, yes, there are certain things like, okay, these are the signs of, you know, con- concerning for DKA. You want to get this patient to the emergency room, like those kinds of things. You want to make sure your patient always has their prescriptions and everything else. But outside of that, the day-to-day, the outpatient management is a style. And most people develop a style that's a combination, a hybrid of where and how they were trained, 
and who they are as people. And so I think it's often a reflection of, of those two variables, but which kind of manifest. And it's funny you bring this up today because in my fellowship, I had two co-fellows who I went through my training with who are wonderful physicians and who I would see in a heartbeat myself. And they do not have type one. And they, uh, in, we have a group chat because we're pretty new attendings. And sometimes we have questions, clinical questions. And the clinical question came up. One of my um, colleagues to the, to the group chat, and they, it's always prefaced because of imposter syndrome. I know this is a dumb question, but, you know, we all think. <laughs> um, and she asked, when we change the active insulin in time on an Omnipod 5, what is that actually doing? And what does that actually mean? And it kind of just highlighted, and we started talking about this, and I explained to her what it meant, but it highlighted that, especially in that nuanced way of type one and technology in type one, we don't get very extensive training on that, mm -mm. especially as fellows. We get exposure to it, but the technology one is like very rapidly changing and very rapidly being upgraded. So A, that's really hard to stay on top of. It's like a master's program in and of itself to understand just one of the pump algorithms. So it's kind of not fair to expect someone to come out of uh, endocrine training, which is not diabetes alone. It's diabetes, it's thyroid, it's, it's osteoporosis, it's pituitary, mm -hmm. it's adrenal. It's a lot of things that you could do two years just on type one. And so we don't have that specialty training. So it kind of is a self-learning experience you you get a lot of exposure from like the drug reps will come around and, and kind of update you on like the new updates for Tandem and Omnipod. Mm -hmm. and but at the end of the day, um, you know, and, and there's so much data, as you know, that every individual clinician will have their own kind of way and style to approach the data, to internalize the data, analyze the data, and then to make the recommendations. Um, and so I like to use the approach of, I look at the data with the patient and I ask them, what do you see? Is there a pattern that's jumping out to you? You know, this is your data, right? And I try to provide context. I tell them what I see, and I ask them if that jives with what they're experiencing. And then together we come up with a plan. I always ask them, do you feel comfortable with this plan? Do you think this plan will work? Is there any you know questions or reservations you have about this plan? Because if you don't include the patient who lives with this, breathes with this, not only will they may not include their you know and actually do the recommendation but they may not agree and they may think no that's wrong and any doctor that's not humble and can say i might be wrong is a bad doctor any doctor that says they know 100 percent of the time a cocky doctor in my opinion is the worst mm -hmm. the most dangerous well i think it's the most dangerous honestly also because there's so much that goes unknown in the medical world regardless of you know any any training, there's very few things that is that are black and white, and the diabetes sphere is definitely not one of them. Um, but that kind of you 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 bring up a, a point here talking about uh, listeners who are unaware. He, Tandem and Omnipod; those are all types of insulin pumps which people can use that actually have updated algorithms that can kind of artificial intelligence their way into helping um, all of us manage our blood sugar, but uh, I know that this is a very expensive thing for those who don't have insurance or are trying to outsource if they're not located in the U.S. and, you know, what have you. I'm curious to, to, to hear a little bit about what it's been like working with insurance companies and trying to figure, maybe not insurance companies specifically, but learning 
you know, seeing what this cost is, because we all really kind of see the bottom line of our own coverage. But you, these endocrinologists are fighting for our prior authorizations and they're kind of at the, this really does affect our care. And if you can't afford an insulin pump and you're on multiple daily injections, which, you know, Christy, one of our co-hosts has been on for since forever and people do manage with that just fine. And whatever makes you happy, you don't have to do technology, but I'm just so curious to hear like, how has that been being a type one diabetic who also has to go up against this mammoth system? I've smashed a lot of computers. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I do bang my head against the wall a lot. It, it's, it's extremely frustrating. The, the American healthcare system is the most convoluted, complicated, frustrating, broken system that doesn't need to be. And I mean, we can get off into a tangent because this I could really go on a rant and it does get very politically charged and, and it talks a lot about like your own beliefs and ethics. But, you know, I personally think that health should be a human right. I, I don't think access to health care and access to supplies that literally keep us alive should be something that people have a financial stake in. And, and whenever you're dealing with an insurance company, they're beholden to shareholders. So every day, no matter what the decision is, at the end of the day, they care more about the bottom line and the money than it does keeping someone else. alive. <laughs> yeah. And it frustrates me. So um, the way just to just to give a quick breakdown, the way it works, there's a number of players in this kind of convoluted like hellstorm. So there's the provider, which is me, and I'm the patient facing. And so oftentimes I catch the wrath of some patients not understanding that like it's not my fault that I'm trying to help. But I'm the interface at this point most of the time. So there's the provider who I have 18 million years of schooling that gives me this opportunity, this privilege to say, I'm going to write you a prescription for what's going to help you and what we decide upon as a plan. And I put that through. And if you are lucky enough to have insurance in this country, you pay a certain amount of money a month or whatnot, or your business does, and you have coverage. Within that coverage includes usually DME, durable medical advice, durable medical equipment, and pharmaceutical. So that's like drugs, insulin, that kind of stuff. And often these things are mostly covered at cost where you pay a minor, what's called co-payment. But these insurance companies have what are called formularies. And so formulary is basically a list of what they approved. What they approved has nothing to do, as far as I can tell, nothing to do with evidence, with uh, (laughs) this is a better drug. It has to do with if, if they want to carry a, a kind of soda brand, if they want Coke or they want Pepsi, they'll take whatever Coke will pay them the less. They'll take, I mean, Coke will charge them less. They'll, they'll cover Coke. So if you normally get Novolog insulin and your insurance carrier, if you have Aetna or Blue Cross mm-hmm. or whatever, and then a few years later, they, they go into a back room and shake hands with, with Humalog and Humalog gets some better deal. All of a sudden, you have no say. You only can have a, a coverage your Humalog instead of the Novolog. Yeah, that's when and you get the le- that's when you get the letter in the mail. And I, throughout I'm my crying. life, I can't yeah. even count how many times that's happened. I've just switched back and forth between the two. I still it don't is, know which one I'm, I'm covered for. By the way, like I switched, <laughs> they switched me twice in like three years, and I have both in my fridge. And every time I go to, to whatever doctor, and I have to list, I have no idea. Okay. And then you get the like poor, 
poor person who's like very new to the job that doesn't mm -hmm. know that they're the same thing. And mm -hmm. they're like, oh, do you need an updated Humalog? What about updated Novalog? I'm like, if you can swing it, let me know. But <laughs> but it's true. Like it's dangerous too, right? Like to your point, like if you, most doctors that are not endocrinologists don't really know insulin. They don't really know type yeah. one. And, you know, if you end up in the hospital or something and they look at your mm -hmm. med list and you have Humalog and Novalog and they give you both, you're going to go low. Like, the, these, these things are problematic and it, it frustrates me because when you get to it, like pumps, like if you have someone on MDI or multiple daily injections, which to, to your point, Emily, if it works for you, do your thing. Like, like that doesn't mean you need to switch to a pump. However, the data shows us and anecdotally what I've experienced and what I've seen my patient experience is your control is a lot easier when you have a pump because a lot of the, the cognitive load is a lot of not all of it but a lot of it's lifted and taken off your shoulders anyway nonetheless if you don't have insurance you are screwed the mm -hmm. the out-of-pocket cost to get a pump is in the hundreds the tens of thousands if you if you calculate all the the, the supplies you're going to need every few months the the out-of-pocket cost for continuous glucose monitor the out-of-pocket cost for insulin is obnoxiously high and if you go deep if you look into the history of insulin in the early 1920s in Canada, exactly, you know, Banting and Best sold the patent for a dollar with the idea that it shouldn't belong to anyone but the people who need it. It's just the, the, the mental gymnastics that one has to do to realize how, how far off the path we've become. So anyway, it frustrates me. And so I spend a good chunk of my day. Um, so the first process would be if it doesn't get approved. Um, then you have to find out what they cover. And if they don't cover the one that you want, then I could send a letter of medical necessity. So I basically yell at them through a letter. And it's all nonsense. It's all hoops. And they, these hoops are artificial barriers because at the end of the day, they just they, they, they make up things that they need in the hopes that, and in truth, that physicians don't have the time, energy, or staff to get all that together, send it in. And then they look for your 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 cross T's, your dotted I's, and if they everything's all set, then they can still further deny it. So you do what's called a prior authorization. You send a letter of medical necessity, and then from there, if they still deny it, then I can get on the phone with another, you know, clinical person from the, the insurance company and argue it up with them over the phone call, the peer to peer. Listener, you're and missing that, a lot mm, of yeah. finger quotes for those. That, you know, <laughs> I feel like that just needed to be said. Please continue, Mike. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. So, so even at that point, you can still get denied. Now, what I have to say is, thankfully, most insurances and most people with type one will not have um, a huge issue obtaining some kind of diabetes medical equipment. Most of that is often covered at full cost. Most of it. Um, that being said, if you're within warranty, so that's usually about four years per pump and you wanted to switch, it could be done, but it's difficult. And I, mm -hmm. it takes a lot of legwork on the provider to, to call, write the letters, find the reasons, explain. And even then, they may, not, they may not. And I'm currently in the process as we speak. I just sent an email trying to help the patient switch from one to another. And it's hard. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of locked in. This, this is definitely worse in the, and I know Emily wanted to tap into this, into this like GLP-1 yeah. category. Mm -hmm. um, is this is this a segue? Should we get into it? I'm talking yes, a lot. I was yeah, really. I mean, we only have like six minutes left, so sorry because this is a, something we could discuss an entire oh. series of podcasts. But um, I am doing a ton of reporting in my day job on the use of these types of medic medications called GLP ones. They're glucagon like protagonist one receptor. I butchered that. Peptides. 
Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm antagonist lol. I'm <laughs> impressed, Emily. Um, yeah, clearly. I hope my boss didn't hear me say that because I butchered it. So she's probably going to go check all of my stories because I definitely got it wrong. Um, but <laughs> these are a class of medications that are typically have been used for to help manage type 2 diabetes, blood sugar levels. And the way they work is they mimic this GLP-1 hormone in your gut, and that helps spur the production of insulin, which also, you know, as we know, helps lower blood sugar, but it can also send like trigger pathways to the brain to help us feel fuller and more satiated. I can never actually say that. Um, All this is to say that Mike and I were chatting a little while ago, and it seems like there are some exciting indicators in the use of these with um, with type one, but these medications have gained a ton of buzz and what have you. Pop culture. Yes, for their weight loss side effects, even though they were not originally these, well, they're definitely not FDA approved for weight loss as in Ozempic, but there is another form called Wigovi and, you know, Trisepatite. There's all these different ones now that are approved for weight loss. Um, So I wanted to specifically talk about type two diabetes and the diabetes aspect of these GLP ones and not really get into the whole weight loss idea of it. Um, But I'm curious as to, you know, do you have any patients that are type, maybe not uh, I feel like I just got into HIPAA laws. Do you know of any patients that, um, <laughs> that are taking GLP ones alongside insulin, and how 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 are you feeling about it? Are you excited? Yes. Um, so okay. So so much to talk about. I'm going to try and do it quickly because I only have a few minutes. So just to kind of encapsulate what you just said so beautifully. So GLP ones, a glucagon-like peptide one, is a type of what we call incretin hormone. It comes out of the small intestine naturally. So it's a hormone we make naturally. So when we eat food gets secreted into the blood, it goes to a number of sites. One of the sites you mentioned goes to the hypothalamus in the brain, and it hits the satiety center. So you mentally feel full. You've changed that set point of feeling full. It slows gastric emptying down. So if you think of your food going down the food tube at a certain mile per hour, <laughs> 65 miles per hour down the, mm-hmm. down the highway, down to the stomach, the GLP-1 agents make it go down 25 miles per hour. So it mm-hmm. slows it down. So you physically feel full physically full, mentally full, you eat less, you lose a lot of weight. And that's good. Obesity is a massive problem in this country. Mm-hmm. Obesity is for some the, people, for mm-hmm. some, some classes of people. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Now, obesity, when we talk about a lot of the health problems we see in America, when we talk about fatty liver disease, hypertension, high blood sugar and type 2 diabetes, um, all of this, the common denominator is visceral fat, which is a surrogate marker of your adiposity, so the, the fat that you carry. When that comes down, that common denominator, everything else follows. Your cholesterol gets better, your blood pressure gets better, your fatty liver gets better, your glucose gets better. This is true. And we're not talking about type 1. Correct. So all of this, these are separate mechanisms from the weight loss. So from besides the weight loss, that is the etiology for a lot of these other chronic problems in, a, in the adult population in America. It is also, um, you know, taking care of, of, of these other things. So, so these medications are very effective, very powerful. They're not without plenty of side effects. And at the moment, because of the pop culture craze and, and the unethical prescription writing of these medications and, and the cost that, you know, there is a massive, and I see it every day and it frustrates me, there is a big divide between the haves and the have-nots. The haves that have money and access are go people to a that may to get a prescription exactly and these are patients that may or may not actually really need this medication and so because the supply is so short they're on they're, they're effectively taken away from people that really do need it for their diabetes and 
their obesity, you know, driven diabetes. So these are patients that would benefit from it and can't get it. So they can't get it because either insurance won't cover it. They, insurance covers it, but none of the stock in the pharmacy has it because everyone else is, is buying it off the shelves at, at top mm-hmm. cost, which is twelve to $1,400 a month if, it, if it's out of pocket. So They're it, injectable medications too. So if you're not, if you don't have any of the clinical indicators, you're literally injecting yourself. Like I, the thought of giving myself a shot when I don't have to, as as someone that does, it deals does with have it, to do it, blows my yeah. mind. It blows my mind. Yeah. It's insane. It's insane. So at the moment, uh, and you correctly noted this. So there, there's there's Ozempic, which is like the poster child of this. this that's semaglutide or semaglutide, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, the, the and this is where the semantics and and like nonsensory of of how the FDA works. The Wegovy is the weight loss version of Ozempic. It's semaglutide. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Same active slight, ingredient. Same active ingredient. It's a slightly different dosing, but it's effectively the same thing. But because they they put it, you know, they put it in a different dress. You can take it to a different ball. You can call it for obesity. <laughs> I don't know. So that's what it is. Um, and then there's Manjaro, which is terzepatide, which is actually a dual agent. It's both GLP-1 and something called GIP, gastric inhibitory peptide. And we found through studies that it's more effective, um, more weight loss, better A1C control, less side effects. It's great. So they finally just approved the Zetbound, which is terzepatide. Mm. In the same dosing, different package, FDA approved for weight loss. That's Eli Lilly's Still, version. And Wagovia uh, Nozempic or Nova Nordisk. These names probably sound familiar for a reason. Okay, guys, that's part one with Dr. Mike Natter. Um, we just had so much to discuss on the topic of GLP-1s and all that comes along with it and what it means for every type of diabetic that we're going to have to follow up with around two. So I'm going to do this quick wrap up. Follow us on Instagram at pancreas underscore pals on Facebook, pancreas pals PP. Um, slide into our DMs, email us pancreaspals123 at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Definitely hit up Mike. He is a wealth of knowledge. Follow him on Instagram and you will not be disappointed. His artwork is beautiful and also such a great way to um, to share information in a digestible way about health. So be sure to check him out and we will be back with a part two soon. Thanks, guys.